Chapter 11, Part 1 of The Sea, Its Stirring Stories of Adventure, Peril and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Luke Dixie. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril and Heroism, Volume 1 by Frederick Wimper, Chapter 11. Round the world on a man of war continued, from the Horn to Halifax, Part 1. And now the exgenesis of the service require us to tear ourselves away from gay and pleasant Valparaiso, and voyage in spirit round the Horn to the Southeast American station, which includes the whole coast, from Terra del Fuego to Brazil and Guyana. Friendly ports, Rio and Montevideo, are open to the Royal Navy as stations for necessary repairs or supplies, but the only strictly British port on the whole station is that at the dreary Falkland Islands, to be shortly described. Every schoolboy knows that Cape Horn is even more dreaded than the other Cape of Storms, otherwise known as the Cape par excellence. These days, the introduction of steam has reduced much of the danger and horrors of the passage round, though on occasions they are sufficiently serious. In fact, now that there is a regular tugboat service in the Straits of Magellan, there is really no occasion to go round it at all. In 1862, the writer rounded it, in a steamer of good power, when the water was as still as a mill pond, and the horn itself, a barren, black, craggy, precipitous rock, towering above the utter desolation and bleakest solitudes of that forsaken spot, was plainly in sight. Captain Basil Hall and his officers and crew in 1820, when rounding Cape Horn, observed a remarkable phenomenon, which may account for the title of the land of fire bestowed upon it by Magellan. A brilliant light suddenly appeared in the northwestern quarter. At first of a bright red, it became fainter and fainter till it disappeared altogether. After the lapse of four or five minutes, its brilliancy was suddenly restored and it seemed as if a column of burning materials had been projected into the air. This bright appearance lasted from 10 to 20 seconds, fading by degrees as the column became lower, till at length only a dull red mass was distinguishable for about a minute, after which it again vanished. The sailors thought it a revolving light, others that it must be a forest on fire. All who examined it carefully through a telescope agreed in considering it a volcano like Stromboli, emitting alternately jets of flame and red-hot stones. The light was visible till morning, and although during the night it appeared to be not more than eight or ten miles off, no land was to be seen. The present writer would suggest the probability of its having been an electrical phenomenon. The naval station at the Falklands is at Port Stanley, on the eastern island, where there is a splendid landlocked harbour with a narrow entrance. The little port is, and has been, a haven of refuge for many a storm-beaten mariner, not merely from the fury of the elements, but also because supplies of fresh meat can be obtained there, and, indeed, everything else. Wild cattle of old Spanish stock roam at will over many parts of the two islands. When the writer was there, in 1862, beef was retailed at fourpence per pound, and Port Stanley, being a free port, everything was very cheap. How many boxes of cigars, 
pounds of tobacco, cases of hollands and demijohns of rum were, in consequence, taken on board by his three hundred fellow passengers, would be a serious calculation. The little town has not much to recommend it. It has, of course, a government house and a church, and barracks for the marine stationed there. It is, moreover, the headquarters of the Falkland Islands Company, a corporation much like the Hudson's Bay Company, trading in furs and hides, and stores for ships and native trade. The three great characteristics of Port Stanley are the penguins, which abound, and are to be seen waddling in troops in its immediate vicinity, and stumbling over the stones if pursued. The kelp, which is so thick and strong in the water, at the edge of the bay in places, that a strong boat's crew can hardly get way enough on to reach the shore, and the peat bogs, which would remind an Irishman of his beloved Erin. Peat is the principal fuel of the place, and what glorious fires it makes. At least so thought a good many of the passengers who took the opportunity of living on shore during the fortnight of the vessel's stay. For about three shillings and sixpence a day, one could obtain a good bed, meals of beef steaks, and joints of fresh vegetables. Very welcome, after the everlasting salt junk and preserved vegetables of the ship. With the addition of hot rum and water, nearly ad libitum, then the privilege of stretching one's legs is something. After five or six weeks' confinement, there is duck and loon shooting to be had, or an excursion to the lighthouse a few miles from the town, where the writer found children of several years of age who had never even beheld the glories of Port Stanley, and yet were happy, and near which he saw on the beach sea trees, for seaweed would be a misnomer, the trunks being several feet in circumference, slippery, gluttonous, marine vegetation uprooted from the depths of ocean. Some of them would create a sensation in an aquarium. The harbour of Port Stanley is usually safe enough, but in the extraordinary gales which often rage outside, does not always afford safe anchorage. The steamship, on which the writer was a passenger, lay far out in the bay, but the force of a sudden gale made her drag her anchors, and, but for the steam, which was immediately got up, she would have gone ashore. A sailing vessel must have been wrecked in the same position. Of course, the power of the engines was set against the wind, and she was saved. Passengers ashore could not get off for two days, and those on board could not go ashore. No boat could have lived, even in the bay, during a large part of the time. The West Indian station demands our attention next. Unfortunately, it must not take the space it deserves, for it would occupy that required for ten books of the size of this, I twenty, to do it the barest justice. Why? Read Charles Kingsley's admirable work, at last, one alas, of the last tasks of a well-spent life, and one will see England's interests in those islands, and must think also of those earlier days when Columbus, Drake and Raleigh sailed among the waters which divide them, days of geographical discovery worth speaking of, of grand triumphs over foes worth fighting, and of gain amounting to something. On the 31st July, 1499, Columbus, on his third voyage, sighted the three hills which make the southeastern end of Trinidad. He had determined to name the first land he should sight after the Holy Trinity, and so he did. The triple peaks probably reminded him, 
Washington Irving tells us, in his Life of Columbus, that he was astonished at the verdure and fertility of the country, having expected that it would be parched, dry and sterile as he approached the equator, whereas he beheld beautiful groves of palm trees and luxuriant forests sweeping down to the seaside, with gurgling brooks and clear, deep streams beneath the shade, the softness and purity of the climate and the beauty of the country seemed, after his long sea voyage, to rival the beautiful province of Valencia itself. Columbus found the people a race of Indians fairer than any he had seen before, of good stature and of very graceful bearing. They carried square bucklers and had bows and arrows with which they made feeble attempts to drive off the Spaniards who landed at Punta Arnal, near Icacu, and who, finding no streams, sank holes in the sand and so filled their casks with fresh water, as is done by sailors nowadays in many parts of the world. And there, says Kingsley, that source of endless misery to these harmless creatures, a certain cacique, so goes the tale, took off Columbus's cap of crimson velvet and replaced it with a circle of gold which he wore. Alas for them, that fatal present of gold brought down on them enemies far more ruthless than the Caribs of the Northern Islands, who had a habit of coming down in their canoes and carrying off the gentle Arawaks to eat them at their leisure. After the fashion which Defoe, always accurate, has immortalised in Robinson Crusoe. Crusoe's island has been thought by many to be meant for Tobago, Man Friday having been stolen in Trinidad. No scenery can be more picturesque than that afforded by the entrance to Port of Spain, the chief town in the colony of Trinidad, itself an island lying outside the delta of the great Orinoco River. On the mainland, wrote Anthony Trollope, that is, the land of the main island, the coast is precipitous, but clothed to the very top with the thickest and most magnificent foliage. With an opera glass, one can distinctly see the trees coming forth from the sides of the rocks as though no soil were necessary for them and not even a shelf of stone needed for their support. And these are not shrubs but forest trees with grand spreading branches, huge trunks and brilliant coloured foliage. The small island on the other side is almost equally wooded but is less precipitous. There, and on the main island itself, are nooks and open glades where one would not be badly off with straw hats and muslin, pigeon pies and champagne. One narrow shady valley into which a creek of the sea ran made Trollope think that it must have been intended for the less noisy joys of some pool of Trinidad with his Creole of Virginia. The same writer, after describing the savannah, which includes a park and racecourse, speaks of the government house, then under repairs. The governor was living in a cottage, hard by. Were I that great man, said he, I should be tempted to wish that my great house might always be under repair, for I never saw a more perfect specimen of a pretty spacious cottage, opening as a cottage should do, on all sides and in every direction. And then the necessary freedom from boredom, etiquette and governor's grandeur, so hated by governors themselves, which must necessarily be brought about by such a residence. I could almost wish to be a governor myself, if I might be allowed to live in such a cottage. The buildings of Port of Spain are almost invariably surrounded by handsome flowering trees. 
a later writer, tells us that the governors since have stuck to the cottage, and the gardens of the older buildings have been given to the city as a public pleasure ground. Kingsley speaks of it as a paradise. Jack Ashore, who, after a long and perhaps stormy voyage, would look upon any land as a haven of delight, will certainly think that he has at last reached the happy land. It is not merely the climate, the beauty or the productions of the country, nor the West Indian politeness and hospitality, both proverbial, but the fact that nobody seems to do or wants to do anything and yet lives ten times as well as the poorer classes of England. There are 8,000 or more human beings in Port of Spain alone, who toil not, neither do they spin, and have no other visible means of sustenance except eating something or other, mostly fruit, all the live long day, who are happy, very happy. The truth is, that though they will, and frequently do, eat more than a European, they can almost do without food, and can live, like the Lazzaroni, on warmth and light. The best substitute for a dinner is a sleep under a south wall in the blazing sun, and there are plenty of south walls in Port of Spain. Has not a poor man, under these circumstances, the same right to be idle as a rich one? Everyone there looks strong, healthy and well-fed. The author of Westwood Ho was not likely to be deceived, and says, One meets few or none of those figures and faces, small, scruffless, squinny and haggard, which disgrace the civilization of a British city. Nowhere in Port of Spain will you see such human beings as in certain streets of London, Liverpool and Glasgow. Everyone plainly can live and thrive if they choose, and very pleasant is it to know that. And wonderfully well does that mixed and happy-go-lucky population assimilate. Trinidad belongs to Great Britain, but there are more Negroes, half-breeds, Hindus and Chinese than Britons by ten times ten. And the language of the island is mainly French, not English or Spanish. Under cool porticos and through tall darkways are seen dark shops built on Spanish models and filled with everything under the sun. On the doorstep sit negresses, in flashy Manchester prints and stiff turbans, all aiding in the general work of doing nothing, or offering for sale fruits, sweet meats or chunks of sugar cane. These women, as well as the men, invariably carry everything on their heads, whether it be a half-barrow load of yams, a few ounces of sugar or a beer bottle. One of the regrets of an enthusiastic writer must ever be that he cannot visit all the lovely and interesting spots which he may so easily describe. The present one, enamoured with San Francisco, which he has visited, and Singapore and Sydney, which as yet he hasn't, would, if such writers as Charles Kingsley and Anthony Trollope are to be credited, add Trinidad to the list. Read the former's letter from a West Indian cottage or knee, or the latter's description of a ride through the cool woods and seashore roads, to be convinced that Trinidad is one of the most charming islands in the whole world. Bamboos keep the cottage gravel path up, and as tubes carry the trickling cool water to the cottage bath. You hear a rattling as of boards or stiff paper outside your window. It is the clashing together of a fan palm, with leaf stalks ten feet long and fans more feet wide. The orange, the pineapple, the flower fence, 
poinziana, the cocoa palm, the tall guinea grass, and the grugrus, a kind of palm, acrocomia sclerocarpa, the silk cotton tree, the tamarind, and the rosa del monte bushes, twenty feet high and covered with crimson roses, tea shrubs, myrtles, and clove trees intermingle with vegetation common elsewhere, thus much for a mere chance view. The seaman ashore will note many of these beauties, but his superior officers will see more. The cottage ornee, to which they will be invited, with its lawn and flowering shrubs, tiny specimens of which we admire in hothouses at home, the grass as green as that of England, and winding away in the cool shade of strange evergreens, the yellow coconut palms on the nearest spur of hill throwing back the tender blue of the distant mountains, groups of palms with perhaps Euthrinus umbrosa, boys immortalis, they call them in Trinidad, with vermilion flowers, trees of red coral, sixty feet high, interspersed, a glimpse beyond of the bright and sleeping sea, and the islands of the Bocas floating in the shining waters, and behind a luxuriously furnished cottage, where hospitality is not a mere name, but a very sound fact. What on earth can man want more? Kingsley, in presence of the rich and luscious beauty, the vastness and repose to be found in Trinidad, sees an understandable excuse for the tendency to somewhat grandiose language which tempts perpetually those who try to describe the tropics and know well that they can only fail. He says, in presence of such forms and such colouring as this, one becomes painfully sensible to the poverty of words, and the futility, therefore, of all word painting, of the inability to, of the senses to discern and define objects of such vast variety, of our atheistic barbarism, in fact which has no choice of epithets, save such as great and vast, and gigantic, between such as beautiful and lovely and exquisite and so forth, which are, after all, intellectually only one stage higher than the half-brute wah-wah with which the savage grunts his astonishment. Call it not admiration, epithets which are not perhaps intellectually as high as the God is great of the Mussulman, who is wise enough not to attempt any analysis, either of nature or his feelings about her, and wise enough, also, in presence of the unknown, to take refuge in God. Monkeys of many kinds, jaguars, toucans, wildcats, wonderful anteaters, raccoons and lizards and strange birds, butterflies, wasps and spiders abound, but none of those animals which resent the presence of man. Happy land. But the gun has fired. HMSC is getting all steam up. The privilege of leave cannot last forever. It is all aboard, with a bound. In the archipelago of the West Indies, there are so many points of interest and so many ports which the sailor of the Royal Navy is sure to visit. There are important docks at Antigua, Jamaica and Bermuda, while the whole station, known professionally as the North American and West Indian, reaches from the north of South America to beyond Newfoundland, Kingston and Jamaica where England maintains a flagship and a commodore, a dockyard and a naval hospital. Kingston Harbour is a grand lagoon nearly shut in by a long sand spit, or rather bank, called the Palisades, 
at the point of which is Port Royal, which, about 90 years ago, was nearly destroyed by an earthquake. Mr Trollope says that it is on record that hardy subs and hardier mids have ridden along the palisade and have not died from sunstroke in the effort. But the chances were much against them. The ordinary ingress and egress as to all parts of the island's coasts is by water. Our naval establishment is at Port Royal. Jamaica has picked up a good deal in these later days, but it is not the thriving country it was before the abolition of slavery. Kingston is described as a formal city, with streets at right angles and with generally ugly buildings. The fact is that hardly any Europeans or even well-to-do Creolas live in the town and, in consequence, there are long streets, which might almost belong to a city of the dead, where hardly a soul is to be seen, at all events in the evenings. All the wealthier people, and there are a large number, have country seats, pens as they call them, though often so charmingly situated and so beautifully surrounded, the term does not seem very appropriate. The sailor's pocket money will go a long way in Kingston if he confines himself to native productions, but woe unto him if he will insist on imported articles. All through the island, the white people are very English in their longings and affect to despise the native luxuries. Thus, they will give you oxtail soup when real turtle would be infinitely cheaper, when yams, avocado pears, the mountain cabbage, plantains and 20 other delicious vegetables may be had for the gathering, people will insist on eating bad English potatoes, and the desire for English pickles is quite a passion. All the servants are Negroes, or mulattoes, who are greatly averse to ridicule or patronage, while if one orders them as is usual in England, they leave you to wait on yourself. Mr Trollope discovered this. He ordered a lad in one of the hotels to fill his bath, calling him Old Fellow. Who you call Old Fellow? asked the youth. You speak to a gentleman gentlemanly, and then he fill the bath. The sugar cane, and by consequence, sugar and rum, coffee and of late tobacco, are the staple productions of Jamaica. There is one district where the traveller may see an unbroken plain of 4,000 acres under canes. The road over Mount Diabolo is very fine and the view back to Kingston very grand. Jack ashore will find that the people all ride, but that the horses always walk. There are respectable mountains to be ascended in Jamaica. Blue Mountain Peak towers to the height of 8,000 feet. The highest inhabited house on the island, the property of a coffee planter, is a kind of halfway house of entertainment, and although Mr Trollope, who provided himself with a white companion, who in his turn provided five negroes beef, bread, water, brandy, and what seemed to him about ten gallons of rum, gives a doleful description of the clouds and mists and fogs which surrounded the peak, others may be more fortunate. The most important of the West Indian islands, Cuba, Queen of the Antilles, does not, as we all know, belong to England but is the most splendid appanage of the Spanish crown. Havana, the capital, has a grand harbour, large, commodious and safe, with a fine quay at which the vessels of all nations lie. The sailor will note one peculiarity. Instead of laying alongside, the ships are fastened end-on, usually the bow being at the quay. The harbour is very picturesque, and the entrance to it is defended by two forts, which were taken once by England in Albemarle's time, 
and now could be knocked to pieces in a few minutes by any nation which was ready with the requisite amount of gunpowder. End of chapter 11, part 1. Recording by Luke Dixie.